0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. It's lonely out tonight, and the feeling just got right for a brand new love song. Somebody done somebody wrong, song. Hey, won't you play another? Somebody done somebody wrong song, and make me feel at home, while I miss my baby, while I miss my baby, so great. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The NOM which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, it's three episodes and a wake-up left, and this episode is the second-to-last regular episode of the show, as I'm going to be taking a look at the nom number 83 and the historical context and background for the years 1974 and 1975. Our song this time around is Hey, Won't You Play Another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong Song by DJ Thomas, which was the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 for the week of April 26th, 1975, meaning it was the number one song in the country on April 30th, 1975, which is the date of the capture of Saigon by the North Vietnamese and the official end to the Vietnam War. The song entered the charts on February 1st, 75, at 99, slowly come, climbed its way to the top of the chart by the end of April, it also hit the top of the Easy Listening and Country charts and subsequently won the Grammy for Country Song of the Year in 1976. Thomas would have a couple of more hits as the 1980s dawned, and would go on to record the duet As Long As We've Got Each Other with Jennifer Warren's, which is the theme song to the 1980s set sitcom Growing Pains. Show me that smile, Ooh, Show me that smile. Don't waste enough. Incidentally, this song, Hey Won't You Play, holds the distinction of being the longest titled song in words to ever hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and had the honor of being covered by The Muppets on a 1976 episode of The Muppet Show, and by Alvin and the Chipmunks on the country album Urban Chipmunk. Our issue came out on June 29, 1993, with an August 1993 cover date and a $1.75 cover price. I actually have a signed copy of this book. I had it signed by Wayne Van Zent when I met him at Baltimore Comic Con a few years ago. I'll scan the cover and put it in the show notes. The cover is by Mike Harris. It shows Ed Marks cradling the body of Dai Wee while surrounded by some Arvin troops. In the surprint of the cover is the yellow and red of the South Vietnamese flag. The cover copy reads, Death Rides on the Highway of Terror. There are two stories in this issue, the first of which is our main story, and the second which is the finale of the stateside backup. I'll be summing up and reviewing each story separately, and then I'll do letters and ads. So the first story is called The Highway of Terror. Our creative team is Don Lomax Story, Wayne Van and Art, Phil Felix Letters, John Khalees Colors, Tim Tui, Assistant Editor, Don Daly Editor, and Tom DeFalco Was Your Editor-in-Chief. It is nearly dusk on May 6, 1972. Air Force F-4 Phantoms have been streaking north along Highway 1 toward occupied Quang Tree City, hammering the North Vietnamese forces with everything the Americans can throw at them. The cringing, bloodied South Vietnamese Army is making its last stand among the banks of the Con River to try to stem the tide of the enemy into Hue. Daiwi Lu and Sergeant Bulldog Briscoe occupy a listening post in the North Bank. The first contact of ground forces will be here. Ed sits with them besi- behind sandbags and explains that he's up against a deadline while also being asked to do a favor for a few vets back in the world. That favor, by the way, will be detailed in the stateside story. And he has to do that favor in Saigon. Bulldog promises that if he lives through the night, they'll get Ed to Saigon by tomorrow evening. The mission they have is to monitor and patrol Highway 1, which is currently flooded with refugees. They follow the highway along the river and pass a bridge that has been destroyed by the Air Force, part of a recent effort to cut off NVA supply lines and other avenues of enemy transportation. The refugees take to the destroyed bridge, use what they can of it, and then either ford the river or circumvent the problem. The patrol takes to the high ground and asks where they are going. Bulldog says they'll follow the river west and try to spot infiltrators trying to flank the defense line, November Whiskey, which means northwest. They go about four and a half to five clicks when Bulldog tells them to stop. Ed can't see anything, but he knows he hears tanks. They wait, trying to figure out where the tanks might be, and Briscoe radios an approximate position for artillery cover. This appears to destroy at least some of the tanks and things get quiet. They begin monitoring the road again and Ed notices that the flow of refugees appears to have been cut off. Then, they see an NBA soldier who spots them. They fire on him, killing him, but are then fired upon. Bulldog calls Daiwi for cover as the patrol continues to fight. Ed carries one of the injured soldiers to safety and Daiwi shows up to help him and then brings in some reinforcements. He mans a Browning 50 caliber machine gun and fires as the patrol makes its retreat. Then the gun malfunctions and backfires on him, killing him. Ed picks up his body and carries it to safety. The next morning, Ed sits next to a pile of sandbags, looking at the body bag containing Dai Wee. Bulldog says, well, Mr. Marks, you got your story. Oh, hey, Ed, I'm sorry. Stupid things to say. Ed says, it's okay, Bulldog. Did Dai Wee ever tell you where we met? A little special forces outpost called Brass Hat over west of here. And there's a note that says that was uh, the... Number 71 through 73 of the Nam, Sergeant Katowski, he's dead now too, said that Lou was a true gentleman in every sense of the word. Katowski said that it would be nice to see people like him in charge of this country when the war is over. Don't you see, Ed? Bulldog says. Lou and all the other fine young men like him, their fate was sealed with the signing of the Nixon Doctrine. If not this year, then the next, or the one after that. And the narration box says... Briscoe was right. No 12-month tour of duty for Marvin the Arvin. He was in it for the duration. This is a heartbreaking, yet satisfying conclusion to the Ed Marks as a journalist in Vietnam story. For the last several issues, we've been following Ed as he encounters different people back in country, and also listens to the story that they have from the war. Don Lomax has also given us the chance to meet and get to know Bulldog, but especially Daiwi, who's one of the more unique characters he developed during his run. Prior to this, we didn't have a lot of well-rounded characters who were members of the Arvin forces. Yes, we'd have Vietnamese characters who have been supporting cast members, but I really feel that we got to know Dai Wei and got the perspective of the South Vietnamese military personnel in a way that we hadn't during both Doug Murray and Chuck Dixon's run of the title. This is why his death, which comes due to a weapons malfunction, the type that is more dumb luck and bad circumstances than anything else, is tragic. And Ed Marks, who has seen plenty of combat death going all the way back to Mike Albergo in issue 9, feels it, despite that. Lomax keeps the story simple, and that's what makes it effective. This is a patrol during the waning days of American involvement. As some of the caption boxes point out, Nixon had been gradually turning the war over to the Arvin, and while bombing raids and air support continued, the ground forces were getting fewer and fewer as time went on. And as we know from our historical context section, they would be completely gone in 1973, with some troops, CIA, and State Department officials remaining in country until 75. And that's something I'll get to later in this episode. A stream of refugees, and we saw that in The Deer Hunter, and we've seen it in other films, was constant at this point. And Lomax illustrates that his particular patrol here is both routine and dangerous, because so many people in one place are just one big target. The action is nothing spectacular. Again, it's very much a typical confrontation you'd expect from this type of story and operation. But as I mentioned, that's what makes it effective, especially where Wayne Van Sant's art and John Collies' colors are concerned. This takes place entirely at night. They illustrate it using dark blues and shadows with some flashes of gunfire. Coloring and printing had improved quite a bit since the comic premiered in 1987, and even then Michael Golden's artwork depicted night scenes incredibly well but we aren't up to what we're able to portray now as seen in books like the Punisher miniseries I talked about last episode. Still, that doesn't stop our team from heightening the drama of a nighttime battle through the mixture of close-ups and faraway shots over several different panels per page and use of muted tones and a dark palette for the sky. The death of Daiwi is particularly well rendered as we see him firing from the browning, his face lit by the flare from the barrel, and then a close-up of shells discharging from a barrel Then a classic comic panel of an orange explosion and blam when the gun explodes. The next panel is a horizontal one taking up the entire page with a close-up of Ed Marks' face against a midnight background that is lit from the left side, which is where the explosion came from, using a gradient to go from light to dark as we go from left to right. It's a great lighting effect. And the bottom two panels are of a dark one of Ed picking up Daewi's body, and then a wide shot of soldiers watching Ed as he carry him as explosions burst in the background. Wayne Van Zandt, who spent more time than any other penciler on this book, is the unsung hero of the Nam. That's not to diminish the contributions of its original artist, Michael Golden, or any of the other artists or writers, but Wayne Van Zandt's first issue is number seven, and then he took over after Golden left about a year in, Golden set the tone for the book, going with a slightly cartoonish but very real-looking style that translated Doug Murray's stories very well. Van Zant wasn't trying to imitate Golden, and he has his own style that was certainly more realistic. But he did keep that tone, and he continued to set it through the book's entire run. This is incredibly important, because this book that I'm talking about right now came out in June of 93, which is smack in the middle of what I once referred to as the most 90s year of the 90s. A quick look at Mike's Amazing World shows us that on the stands was the reign of the Superman storyline in Superman, Nightfall in Batman, Maximum Carnage in Spider-Man, Bloodlines through the DC Annuals, Fall from Grace in Daredevil, and the the beginning of the Image Valiant Deathmate crossover, the launch of Malibu's Ultraverse, the Marvel swimsuit special, New Titans 100, seven separate Punisher comic books. 7, and the Fatal Attractions crossover in the X-Men. Both good and bad, these are all things that are emblematic of the huge comic boom of the early 90s that would go on to bust very quickly thereafter. And we know from 90s art, of course, big, stylized, splashy, more emphasis on what titillates and looks cool than actual substance. In the middle of all of this, quietly ending its run, is this book, which has an artistic approach that is realistic in the way that is the complete opposite of '90s Marvel. But as someone who, by the time this book came out in 1993, had seen his fair share of Vietnam movies, and who, by the time he covered, had this, had rewatched those and watched some more, that commitment to this tone of realism throughout the artwork is really appreciated because it feels like Wayne Van Zant helped Doug Murray, Chuck Dixon, and Don Lomax bring the war to the page and grounded it in a way that few other artists were able to. I'll give my full elegy for the book in the final episode of the show when I cover the final issue. But I at least felt the need to say something here because this is Wayne Van Sant's last issue of the Nam, and I think that his artwork got stronger and stronger as it went. And if you're interested in seeing more of his work, uh, he's got several war-based graphic novels. He just released a new edition of Katusha, his novel about the great patriotic war in the Ukraine during World War II. I haven't had the chance to pick it up yet so I don't know if it finishes what he began with the first few two volumes of the book a few years ago, but if you haven't picked it up at all before, I do give it my highest recommendation. Now, our book isn't over because there is the last stateside backup. This is called Loose Ends. Our credits are Don Lomax Story, Mike Harris Pencils, Don Lomax Inks, Phil Felix Letters, John Colley's Colors, Daly and DeFalco Arn Edits. Jan Silverman is sleeping when she gets woken up by a call from Ed Marks who is in Saigon. This is the call that Ed was heading out to make in the issue's other story. So it places us about a day after he got on the chopper and said goodbye to Bulldog. She talks to him and then takes the early morning shuttle from New York to Washington D.C. where she meets up with Sarge, Dennis, and Rob to tell them that Ed was able to get some information on the whereabouts of Top. According to Ed, Top, aka Julius Tarver, had been sent to Bend jail and was waiting for his court-martial, but the charges were mysteriously dropped and he was sent to Hawaii to finish out his enlistment. Sarge isn't surprised and Rob is frustrated because Top weaseled his way out of consequences yet again. Jan continues, it seems that after Hawaii, he was the prime suspect in a drug investigation, possibly smuggling heroin in the bodies of dead GIs. However, he was never charged because the only witness in the case was mysteriously killed, and then Top just disappeared after that. trail mostly ends there because that's where the army file ends, although Jan says she called in a favor from her friend at the FBI, who says that his common law wife lives in Washington, D.C. Rob says it may have been Top who killed his brother. They stake out the house over the course of the next several days. They don't see him, but they do see her, and they do see her with bruises on her face, suggested that someone has beaten her. Sarge says that no judge would give him a warrant to investigate the domestic charge, and the murder of Eugene, Rob's brother, was considered a random drive-by, so the case has officially been closed. They decide to set up a buy, using Dennis as the buyer, because even though Top knows who Rob and Sarge are, he's never met Dennis. Sarge says it's risky, but he allows it as long as they bring him in legally. Dennis approaches the house and gets inside. He meets Top's wife, tells Top that Dennis is clean, not wearing a wire or armed to which Top responds by threatening to beat her. Top tells him to show up the next morning at 0300. He's five minutes early. Top's wife has the two men take Dennis up the stairs while Sarge and Rob wait in the shadows. After Dennis goes inside, Top and Rob take out the two men, but while Sarge is cuffing one of the guys, he sees Rob pull out a gun and approach the house. He tells Rob that this isn't the way to do things, to which Rob responds, He killed my brother! Their argument is interrupted by gunshots. They head into the house thinking that Dennis is dead. He's okay. I see a body on the floor. Sarge rolls it over and says, it's Top, all right. He asks if Dennis is okay, and Dennis tells him that during the deal, Top got mad at his wife and started beating her right in front of him. Dennis figures she had had enough, so she pulled out a gun and shot him dead. The police show up and take away the two men as well as Top's wife. Rob says that he's going to call Jan and let her know how things turned out. Sarge then says, I got a feeling that a jury will find that she was as much a victim in this thing as all the other people top hurt in his miserable life. What goes around, comes around. As with my overall impressions of this series, I'm going to have save some overall speculation for the fate of a number of our characters for episode 100, and just focus on what's going on in this story, which I really liked. The death of Rob's brother in issue 76 had given these backups a little more purpose beyond just the catching up with old characters that we had seen in the first few episodes. And Don Lomax wrote an intriguing plot that wrapped up with a satisfying conclusion. Doug Murray had created the character of Top, and from the beginning, he was shady, as we found out in those first few issues. Here, Top never knew that Sarge and Rob were partially responsible for his demise, as he did back in the Nam but at least we got to see that he was pretty much the same person until the end. And I'm honestly not surprised that he was involved with drug running and dealing, because we saw in the number of stories throughout the course of the series, in our look at actual historical events, drugs like heroin were a serious problem in Vietnam, and the drug scene in the early 70s did become heavily involved with heroin, as the more fun, hippie drugs like LSD and marijuana faded a little bit into the background. Granted, pot was pretty much around through the decade of the 70s, and cocaine would rise as a party drug, especially as you get into the disco era. But in a lot of narratives I've seen from the early 70s, the presence of heroin, both in Vietnam and the United States, in the lives of the soldiers, vets, hippies, and others, was a growing problem, as was the trafficking of the drug from Southeast Asia. I like how Long Max also ties in our main story, giving us Ed Marks in the continuing story through that of Jan Silverman, who I know is his next date when he gets back home. And while my co-host from another podcast, Stella, is the real shipper, I will throw my hat into the ring and say that Jan is probably Ed's future wife. Again, more on that in a future episode. But really, as short as this is, and it's slightly longer than previous installments because it is the finale, it's really good. We get Dennis, who was near suicide when we met him, all excited to be part of this bus because he says that he likes feeling useful. We get Sarge as the gruff, upstanding, protective figure who is going to do his best, not only to be a good cop, but to watch over Rob, who is so angry and wants revenge and justice for his little brother. That scene in front of the house before it's interrupted by Top being shot by his wife, while a typical argument we've seen in these types of stories, is very well scripted and well illustrated, and it's a moment that goes along really well with the characters. And speaking of illustrations, I liked Don Lomax's inks on Mike Harris's pencils. He's a little thicker than past ink- inkers, and it really tightens things up. There's still a cartoonish style to things here, but since it's the early 70s and we're dealing with the more cartoonish fashions of the time, it works. Plus, it's been more or less consistent throughout the stateside stories. Overall, this is a great last issue from our regular creative teams when it comes to both the main story and the backup. In a few episodes, I'll have a total recap and opinion. But right now, I'm going to cover letters and ads for issue 83. So, incoming this month. Jim Eaton of Katona, New York, writes in to say he's never written in before. He's 23 years old. He's been reading from issue 10. He's always found the nom fascinating. Uh, he couldn't believe it when he saw Don Lomax joining because he was a re- reader of the Vietnam War Journal. He loves the stories. Uh, he's sad that they're, he's going to miss the comic and, and stuff. And they say thank you for the kind words. Kevin Hayes of Coral Springs, Florida, says, What is going on? And what do you mean that issue 4 is it? How can you stop the comics so abruptly? What went wrong? In issue 75, I wrote in it was printed. I asked if issue 100 was the end. You guys called me crazy, which was happy to hear. And even in issue 79, you told somebody that in issue 87, you were writing about a VCRB regular. He's outraged at the comics ending like this. He talks about the things they've done or haven't done. He's like, you have to take us and lead us in new directions. You haven't done anything about decisive battles of the war like hamburger hill there are more places to stories to go or just tell true stories of individual grunts you could follow a new guy through the tour who cares just go back to 65 and skip around kevin hayes here has been reading since issue number one it's never fallen short of perfect he looked forward to every month he says i'm sure there are readers who've been devastated uh, by the crushing blow in the in in issue 80 but he says, Thank you for reading what I hope is, isn't my last letter to you and for the wonderful stories the guys in the Nam have written. I really don't think you guys know how special you really are. And if this is it, as heartbreaking as it is, it was a real experience and I really learned a lot. You've completed your mission to inform the public about what Vietnam was to the civilians and the grunts. No one ever can ever top you guys. Remember that. And Kev, uh, Tim, Toohey, Tim Toohey says, Kevin, you had some great ideas for story directions. Like I said in this response to the first letter, write in. It's important to read what you readers are thinking about. Hank Liao of Irvine, California is also shocked that the NAM is gonna end. He says he's been following it through the real time. Uh, he's been sorry, he's been following it through day one. He loved the real-time stuff. He's always thought of the NOM as a 94-issue maxi series that would present a meaningful picture of the war from beginning to end. Although the one month per issue premise was not held consistently throughout the past seven years, the contents have always been true to the goal of the comic. It's a comic book I can give my children knowing they will learn something from it. I can't say the same about many comics today. He was surprised by the announcement of the cancellation. He always expected a proper conclusion to the development of this universe, not just the end of the war, but stories of the POW and Vietnam veterans' experiences in the States after the war. Which is four issues left, I doubt that I will see the ending I've been expecting. I hate to say that I've been feeling cheated for the last seven years, but I guess that's how it is. I sincerely hope that the top brass at Marvel will allow the NOM to finish this series the way it was intended to, and I'm sure many other fans will truly appreciate it. They respond, Hank, Don and I would like to keep the NOM going as much as you would. I learned a lot of facts about the war that I didn't know or pro- at the time probably didn't care about. The truth of the matter is that the sales were just not there for the NOM. The comic market has exploded in the last year and a half, and books like the NOM, with a diehard yet small following, can be pushed aside to make room for other books that sell better. Pedro Torres. Um, of philadelphia says that he uh was wondering about the terms that were not defined in issue 79 or 80 he would also like to know if you have any plans to include world war one to korea in, or korea in future comics <laughs> tim too, he says my most sincere apologies for the lack of definitions because the nom notes did fall off um a few months ago so we really haven't had them he says i've been exposed to these terms for so long i think everyone should know them <laughs> I guess. But maybe this was a first issue. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, we leave with Sam Weiss from New York, New York, who says, Your comic rules, the art and realism are compelling and brilliant. As an avid reader and scholar of the Vietnam War, I find that your magazine is tremendous. I loved how you put the Vietnam vocabulary in issue one of the first incoming. One suggestion I have for you is to base the story on the movie Platoon. It would definitely get me to buy. I commend your effort and vision. Um, I'm glad that you understand the seriousness of the war and have the courage to put it on paper. Semper Fi. And then finally, we close out with, well, Sam, thank you for for obvious reasons. An adaptation is not possible now, but had the non-continued publication, we were intending to do an Apocalypse Now type story. So those are the letters. Here are the ads. The inside front cover is uh, an ad for the Robert Townsend movie, Meteor Man, a movie that I have never seen. Um, Maybe we'll rent. Uh, We flip, there's an upper deck baseball card ad. Here's praying you get sent your room for a week because it's a fun pack of baseball cards. There's another baseball card ad for Pinnacle. This is the the trading card and baseball card market were just as huge. And I've already said this in the early 90s as the comic market. So we're just seeing more and more of these high-end baseball cards. Whereas Topps was still putting out the very classic sort of matte finish cardboard you know, cardboard on the back um, cards for a while. I think they might have upgraded it a little bit. Upper Deck and, and Pinnacle were like these glossy ones that were way more expensive per pack. Crunch and Munch has Marvel trading cards. Um, there is the another uh, ad for the Flashback Quest for Identity game that we've seen before. But then there's a Marvel comic book inside of it. Oh, there's a two-page spread for entertainment this month and well here we go, the gripping Nightfall storyline concludes in a sh- as a shocking new Batman is introduced in Batman 500, highlighted by a foil-enhanced die-cut cover. The Batman 500 collector's edition is a must-have. We have a bunch of image titles that are hot, which is Brigade. Oh, yeah, Brigade number zero, which has the origin in it. Extreme number one, which is an anthology title by Rob Liefeld. Gen X number one, which is new. It's a hot new team by Jim Lee. She Bat by Neil Adams and Todd McFarlane, number three and four. I don't remember that one. Spawn number 12, 12 and 13, which has the origin of Spawn. Strike Force number one by Mark Silvestri. It looks good. Super Patriot by Eric Larson and Keith Giffen and the Wildcats yearbook. New one-shot special. Looks great. Dark Horse is launching uh, Comics' Greatest World. You've got Golden City, Steel Harbor. Uh, You can get the sets, of course, and these issues will be Hot. hot. Ooh, Deathmate, featuring art by Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, and more. Deathmate features the ultimate crossover between Image and Valiant. Highlighted by glossy paper and stunning foil covers, Deathmate is a must-have, and it gets our highest recommendation. The Ultraverse is starting up. This is just everything. This is where the glut happens. At last, the real Superman is revealed in Superman 82. In Valiant, you've got a new Dr. Mirage series, X-Men 2099 launched, and then we have the X-Men 30th anniversary Fatal Attraction storyline with stunning hologram covers. All sorts of stuff. There are t-shirts. There's a Deathmate t-shirt. I'm sure somebody has that somewhere. If I spot somebody with a, at a convention wearing an old Deathmate t-shirt, I will have to get a picture of that. Yeah. So again, just this is just the like I said earlier in my recap of the issue. This is just a, the middle of the beginning of the end. It's kind of like this is where the bubble is just about to burst because by '94 things like really take a turn, start to take a turn. Even though '94 has Zero Hour, which is one of my favorite crossovers of all time, mainly because I was there. <laughs> I collected the whole thing. It was just kind of like, you know, even with time, I, you know, there were times where I was like, ah, it's not as good as everything else. But I, I still really, really love Zero Hour. Anyway, that's for the future. Mort Todd does the uh, does Mort's retort instead of sand, sand soapbox in the bullpen bulletins. And he talks about what he's doing in his spare time from Marvel. So a, a, a trade paperback of C. S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, something called Biker Mice from Mars. Horror reprints, and uh, he's overseeing a great series based on Ray- Raymond Chandler's original Philip Marlowe stories. Uh, there's a letters page instead of the bullpen bulletins, um, so they were talking about people writing about bullpen bulletins. Somebody wants the coolometer back. They say that the o meter was just about the worst received feature we've ever run, even worse than the profiles of assistant editors. Somebody writes in and says they try reading the borderline blather. They don't get it. It seems like a collection of buzzwords from the pages of Omni Rolling Stone and the Skeptical Inquirer. And they say, it's our way of exposing all of you to Marveloids, to the topical buzzword of turbulent times we live in. Kind of a public service. Anyone who can correctly define or identify every item in the blather is invited to write in with them and receive a coveted quasi-award. I will tell you what the terms are this month. I'm not going to define them. We have... Shoulder surfing, index of happiness, stud muffin, money puker, sea change, blue sheets, trickle down awareness, irritability, criterion, word parators, bean granola, biochemical event, designer counterfeiters, structured liquid, paperless office, video wallpaper, technical republics, Packet switching, anti-choice protesters, good buzz, eponymous awards, mood poisoning, cochlear transplants, informational transparency, bicycle monarchy. And moving on, we have Game Gear video game ads for WrestleMania Steel Cage Challenge, Spider-Man Return of the Sinister Six and T2. The subscription ad looks like Alan Davis art. It might not be, but it shows Nightcrawler, Megan, and Kitty Pride from Excalibur at the beach, and Nightcrawler has Banffed from the grill to where Megan and Kitty Pryde are sitting with drinks to give them hot dogs. Up top, uh, Lockjaw is chilling out listening to Walkman and drinking from a coconut. We have the same Zitfighters from Outer Space with Stridex ad where you can get an X-Men comic book, and on the back, you need to prepare yourself. In September of 93, one of the greatest video games ever released comes home, and that is... And that'll do it for the NOM 83. I'll be back in a moment with my look at 1974 and 1975. But you don't understand. There was the high school episode and the future episode where they had a daughter. Of course, Milhouse is in game. Yes, and Lisa is so fulfilled in all of those. In fact, there's that Christmas episode where she's so fulfilled by him that who is she calling Nelson? You know why? Because they are endgame. game. It's almost stupid to even discuss it. This show's been going on for, like, so long that there's so many different future scenarios. It's, like, it's been 30 years. Yeah, that's true. That reminds me of Stella on her podcast, Batgirl to Oracle. She's had a pretty healthy run. How long do you think it will last? <laughs> Forever. Ooh, let's give Stella a call. Hello? Hey, Stella. Hey, Stella. Stella. Why are you guys using Skype? Don't you want a feed time? No. Hmm. Don and I were just talking about BTO and how long it's lasted. Remember when we were kids, you didn't think it would go very far? What? What are you talking about? Stella, how long are you going to do this show? Meh. Ten episodes a year. We'll come forth. Ha! You won't make it that long! You're a girl! Yeah! And girls have cooties. Gee, you guys really were supportive back then. We made up for it. By doing what? Mansplaining? And cast splaining. Ugh. Well, anyway. 2020 is going to be a milestone. We've got the 10th anniversary in December and, of course, the 200th episode after that. What are you planning on doing? Call and show for listeners will be scheduled in December and the 200th is going to feature some very special guest reviewers. Hopefully. Ooh, I'll be sure to free my calendar. Not you. You're, no. Fly on with Back Row the Oracle in 2020. So here's the very last historical context for the period that comprises the Vietnam War. Although, in a future episode, I will have some more historical background on Vietnam and the United States after the conclusion of the war. And I'm going to cover all of 74, as well as 75, up to and including the Battle for and Fall of Saigon on April 30th. My information comes from both Wikipedia and the history place. So let's look at 74. Now, it's important to note, as I did a few episodes ago, that as we get further into the 1970s, Middle Eastern countries, especially those who control oil production, get an increasing spotlight when it comes to the United States foreign policy. Toward the end of 1973, OPEC had begun an oil embargo against the United States, Europe, and Japan, which lasted until March 18th of 1974. This was known as the 1973 oil crisis, during which the price of a barrel of oil jumped from $3 to $12, causing serious economic stress. This would happen again in 1979, and these two crises, along with other economic issues, become iconic symbols of the economic problems that the United States had throughout the mid-to-late 70s. I personally was not alive in 1973 and was all of two years old in 1979, but I have seen file footage of long gas lines and stories of stations running out of gas, which would be reflected in the astronomical rise of gas prices in the mid-2000s. On May 9th of 1974, Congress begins impeachment proceedings against President Richard Nixon, stemming from the Watergate scandal. On August 9th, Nixon resigns. As a result of Watergate, Gerald Ford is sworn in as the 38th United States president, becoming the sixth president coping with Vietnam. In September of 74, the United States appropriates only $700 million for South Vietnam. It leaves the South Vietnamese army underfunded and results in a decline of military readiness and morale. On September 6th, President Ford announces a clemency program for draft evaders and military deserters. That program runs through March 31st, 1975 and requires fugitives to take an oath of allegiance and also to perform up to two years of community service. Out of an estimated 124,000 men eligible, about 22,500 take advantage of the offer. In October, the Politburo of North Vietnam decides to launch an invasion of South Vietnam in 1975. On November 17, 1974, William Calley is freed after serving three and a half years under house arrest following his conviction for the murder of 22 civilians in My Lai. On December 13, North Vietnam violates the Paris Peace Treaty and pre- tests President's foreign resolve by attacking Phuoc Long province in South Vietnam. President Ford responds with diplomatic protests, but no military force in compliance with the congressional ban on all U.S. military activity in Southeast Asia. And on December 18th, 1974, North Vietnam's leaders meet in Hanoi to form a plan for final victory. So now I'm going to cover January to April 30th of 1975, and April 30th is the end of the war. On January 1st of 1975, the Khmer Rouge began the campaign that would put it in control of Cambodia, cutting off the supply lines to Phnom Penh. January 7th, the South Vietnamese province of Phuoc Binh became the first to be captured by Viet Cong invaders, who led an assault with tanks and three infantry divisions. Out of 5,400 South Vietnamese army defenders, only 850 survived, and 20 Vietnam Air Force planes were shot down. Local officials were summarily executed. U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger would later write, "Phuc Binh was the test case for the North Vietnamese government to decide to whether to proceed with trying to conquer South Vietnam, and if the United States reacted, there was still a chance for Hanoi to withdraw from the brink. On January 8th, after South Vietnam's Phuoc Long province had been conquered without any intervention by the United States, the Politburo of North Vietnam's Communist Party approved Campaign 275 to liberate the rest of South Vietnam starting with a full-scale attack on the central islands. Party First Secretary Li Duan ordered strikes on Buon Mat Thot, I apologize for, for butchering these, these place names, Thuy Hoa, Quy Nhon, Hue, and Da Nang. By now, the Soviet-supplied North Vietnamese army was the fifth largest in the world. It anticipates a two-year struggle for victory, but in reality, South Vietnam's forces will collapse in only 55 days. On January 14th, testifying before Congress, Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger notes that the United States is not living up to its early presence to South Vietnam's President Thieu of severe retaliatory action in the event of North Vietnam violating the Paris Peace Treaty. On January 16th, United States District Court jury awards $12 million to 1,200 anti-war demonstrators who had been illegally arrested on May 5th, 1971, while they listened to a speech by Congressman Ronald Dellums of California at the U.S. Capitol. The amount was ordered payable by the District of Columbia government following the suit by the ACLU. Many of the group had been detained at makeshift compounds, including RFK Stadium. The ACLU had located 900 of the named plaintiffs. On January 21st, during a press conference, President Ford states that the United States is unwilling to reenter the war. On February 5th, NVA military leader General Van Tien Dung secretly crosses into South Vietnam to take command of the final offensive. That offensive begins on March 10th. 25,000 NVA attack Banmi Mi Thao in the Central Highlands. Troops of the Army of North Vietnam begin an early morning attack in the city in South Vietnam um, with the 3, 316th, 10th, and 320th divisions, easily overrunning an Arvin regiment of defenders who were outnumbered by 5.5 to 1. By 10.30, the next morning, Campaign 275 was over and had effectively placed half of South Vietnam behind enemy lines. Because of Ban Me Thao's strategic location at the intersection of South Vietnam's two main highways, the defeat created a domino effect that would lead to the disintegration and conquest of South Vietnam as Arvin troops abandoned the highlands and fled south. The city would also would fall with 4,000 of the South Vietnamese soldiers defending it, having surrendered or deserted. On March 12th, the seventh and last draft lottery for conscription of 18-year-old American men into military service was held. Men born on December 8th, 1956 would have been drafted first in the event of a national emergency, followed by those born on June 9th and March 22nd, while a February 12th birthday was drawn 366th and last. By 1975, the U.S. Armed Services were recruiting volunteers only. On March 13th, President Tew decides to abandon the highlands, regions, and two northern provinces to the NVA. This results in a mass exodus of civilians and soldiers clogging roads and bringing general chaos. The NVA then shell the disorganized retreat, which becomes known as the Convoy of Tears. The evacuation is made in hopes of consolidating a defense of the remaining provinces around Saigon and possibly regrouping for a counterattack. The strategy might have had a chance of success had it been made sooner, Observer noted later. But the plan to retake certain strategic points and commence an orderly withdrawal from the central highlands was made too late. South Vietnam's defense would collapse so rapidly that the entire nation would be in North Vietnamese control within six weeks. Meanwhile, in Cambodia, Khmer Rouge guerrillas fighting to take over Cambodia destroyed a 20-ton ammunition dump at, at Phnom Penh. Nobody was hurt, but the shrapnel rendered two commercial aircraft inoperable. On March 15th, President Tu ordered his army to abandon defense of the nature of Hue and to retreat southward to defend Saigon. This led to more than 250,000 civilian refugees fleeing southward over the next six weeks. On March 18th, realizing that the army is nearing collapse, NVA leaders meet and decide to accelerate their offensive to achieve total victory before the 1st of May. On March 19th, Quang Tri City falls to the NVA, also after initially hoping to maintain control of the area around Hue, the second largest city in South Vietnam, of course, President Chu orders the area to be completely evacuated, and this sends even more refugees towards Saigon. On March 24th, Tam Ki is overrun by the NVA, and on March 25th, Hue falls without resistance after a 3-day siege. Arvin troops now break and run from the other threatened areas. Millions of refugees continue to flee southward. Lai is evacuated on March 26th. The da Nang is shelled as 35,000 NVA prepare to attack on March 28th. And on March 29th, as the NVA makes its way to Da Nang, a World Aries Boeing 727 makes its fourth and final flight to evacuate refugees to safety in South Vietnam. When the airline's president, Ed Dalier, arrived, there were over 1,000 people at Da Nang. Instead of women and children, 400 South Vietnamese soldiers forced their way onto a plane which normally carried 150 passengers. The jet took off with its back stairway still open, and those who did not make it on board tried to climb onto the wheel wells and the undercarriage of the jet. A March 30th of 1975, Da Nang falls as 100,000 South Vietnamese soldiers surrender after being abandoned by their commanding officers. On March 31st, the NVA begins the Ho Chi Minh campaign, which is the final push towards Saigon. And in Cambodia, Lan Nol, the president of the Khmer Republic, which is formerly known as Cambodia since 1970, bids farewell to his constituents and flees the country. On April 1st, Nik Lung f- falls to the Khmer Rouge insur- insurgency, cutting off a critical supply line to the Cambodia capital of Phnom Penh. Lan Nol eventually settled in Hawaii. Senate President Sau Kham Khoi took over from Lan Nol as president of Cambodia when he was able to escape the approaching Khmer Rouge on the same helicopter as the uh, American ambassador. On April 4th, South Vietnam Khmer Tran Tam Kam resigns. He's replaced by Nguyen Ba Khan. And for the first time since the 1973 War Powers Resolution had taken effect, an American president delivered the required report to Congress about military action. President Ford advised of his sending of U.S. Marines, ships, and helicopters to evacuate refugees from South Vietnam. And as of 2009, there have been 127 reports made under that law. On April 6, with the conquest of South Vietnam imminent, Elections were held in North Vietnam for the 492 seats available in National Assembly. All 492 candidates ran unopposed, and they were members of the Vietnamese Fatherland Front. On April 7th, Cambodia's Prime Minister Long Barrett met with Representative of the Khmer Rouge while in Bangkok. He returned to Cambodia the next day, refused to leave when officials were offered a chance to escape, and he was executed nine days later by the new regime. On April 9th, the NVA closed on Zhuang Loc, 38 miles from Saigon. 40,000 NVA attacked the city and for the first time encountered stiff resistance from South Vietnamese troops. On April 11th, North Vietnam took control of six of the Spratly Islands, which had been under control of South Vietnam, but had also been claimed by the People's Republic of China. The dispute between the two communist nature- nations over ownership of the tiny islands would it be one of several factors in the war between China and Vietnam that takes place in 1979. Operation Eagle Pulse starts on April 12th, as the United States closes its embassy in Cambodia and begins the evacuation of all American citizens. American military helicopters from the aircraft carrier USS Hancock and 180 U.S. Marines from the amphibious assault USS Okinawa arrive at Phnom Penh. There was no interference from the Khmer Rouge during the rescue. On April 17th, the Cambodian Civil War comes to an end when the government of Cambodia surrenders to the Khmer Rouge guerrillas when they capture Phnom Penh. That evening, sound trucks operated by the new regime begin warning Phnom Penh residents of an imminent bombing attack and directing them to flee the city into the countryside. And the Cambodian genocide, as it is known, begins on April 19th. Two days later, after the fall of Phnom Penh, the Khmer Rouge regime announced that all for former government employees, including soldiers, military officers, and policemen, would be required to register with new local authorities. Those who complied with the order were told that they would be sent for re-education at a camp at Battambang on April 28th. On April 27, 1975, U.S. Ambassador Graham Martin meets with President Tiu and pressures him to resign given the gravity of the situation and the unlikelihood that Tiu would ever negotiate with the communists. He resigns on April 21st during a 90 minute rambling TV speech to the, president, to the people of South Vietnam. Chu reads the letter sent by Richard Nixon in 1972, pledging severe retaliatory action if South Vietnam was threatened. Chu condemns the Paris peace accords, Henry Kissinger and the United States. He says the United States has not respected its promises. It is inhumane, it is untrustworthy, it is irresponsible. He is then ushered into exile in Taiwan aided by the CIA. Tu, who was succeeded by Vice President Tran Van Huang, eventually moves to London and he would pass away in Newton, Massachusetts on September 29, 2001. Around that time, the CBU-55, which at the time was described as the most powerful non-nuclear weapon in the U.S. arsenal, was used in combat for the first and only time. A Republic of Vietnam Air Force C-130 dropped the fuel bomb, which consumed all oxygen within a radius of 70 meters, killing 250 North Vietnamese troops near Zuan Lok, capital of Binh Thuy Province. Despite a stiff resistance by the south, the province would fall the next day, ending a two-week battle with South Vietnam's 18th Army Division, which conflict- inflicted over 5,000 NVA casualties and delayed the Ho Chi Minh campaign for two weeks. On April 23rd, 100,000 NVA soldiers advance on Saigon, which is now overflowing with refugees. On the same day, President Ford gives a speech at Tulane University stating that today America can regain the sense of pride that existed before Vietnam, but it cannot be achieved by refighting a war that is finished as far as America is concerned. Earlier in the day, the United States Senate had voted 75 to 17 to approve $250 million in humanitarian aid and use of U.S. troops to evacuate South Vietnam, but declined to take up Ford's request for any further military aid. That same day, Pol Pot, who was the rarely seen Khmer Rouge commander-in-chief and new leader of Cambodia, arrives at Phnom Penh to begin his revolutionary plans to build democratic Kampuchea. On April 27th, Saigon is encircled. 30,000 South Vietnamese soldiers are inside the city but are leaderless. NVA fire rockets into downtown civilian areas as the city erupts into chaos and widespread looting. The next day, Neutralist General Dong Van Big Min becomes the new president of South Vietnam and appeals for a ceasefire that is ignored. April 29th and April 30th are the dates of the fall of Saigon, which the Vietnamese government officially calls the day of liberating the South for national reunification. North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops rolled into the city to the cheers of some Saigonese, but not to all. One South Vietnamese Army colonel committed suicide with his pistol in a downtown square. The Viet Cong headquarters was set up in the former presidential palace and the former president, Zong Van Min, is in custody. The American embassy was sacked, burned, and looted. On April 29th, the NVA shell Tan San Nut Air Base in Saigon. They killed two U.S. Marines at the compound gate. Conditions then deteriorate as the South Vietnamese civilians loot the airbase. President Ford now orders Operation Frequent Wind, the helicopter evacuation of 7,000 Americans and South Vietnamese from Saigon, which begins with the radio broadcast of the song White Christmas, as a prearranged code signal. At Tansan, Nutfrantic civilians begin swarming the helicopters. The evacuation is then shifted to the Walden American Embassy, which is secured by United States Marines in full combat gear. But the scene there also deteriorates as thousands of civilians attempt to get into the compound. Three US aircraft carriers stand by off the coast of Vietnam to handle incoming Americans and South Vietnamese refugees. Many South Vietnamese pilots also land on the carriers, flying American-made helicopters, which are then pushed overboard to make room for more arrivals. The people here were herded into groups. All they could take was hand luggage. 50 at a time, they took off for the carriers waiting in the South China Sea. Film footage of the $250,000 choppers being tossed into the sea becomes an enduring image of the war's end. At 11.08 Saigon time, the order to carry out Operation Frequent Wind was received. It commenced the evacuation of all Americans from South Vietnam, as well as those nationals who might face retaliation. American helicopters eventually evacuated 1,373 Americans, 5,595 South Vietnamese, and 815 foreign nationals in a span of 18 hours. Those two uh, Marines who were killed at the airbase were Charles McMahon and Lieutenant Corporal Darwin L. Judge. The remains were inadvertently left behind and would be buried by North Vietnamese at a Saigon cemetery. On February 22nd, 1976, their bodies would be released and back into American custody. At 8.35 a.m. on April 30th, the last Americans, which are 10 Marines from the embassy, depart Saigon, concluding the United States' presence in Vietnam. North Vietnamese troops pour into Saigon, and encounter little resistance. By 11 a.m., the red and blue Viet Cong flag flies from the presidential palace. President Min broadcasts a message of unconditional surrender and the war is over. A North Vietnamese tank broke the gate at the president's palace in Saigon. A communist soldier ran the revolution's flag across the empty lawn. The shooting on this day the communists won was not in a battle, but a celebration. Saigon had already surrendered. The fall of Saigon took place, effectively ending the Vietnam War as a victory for the communists at 10.24 a.m. local time, when South Vietnamese President Duong Van Minh announced the surrender of the nation to the North Vietnamese invaders. I believe firmly in reconciliation among Vietnamese to avoid unnecessary shedding of the blood of the Vietnamese said Minh. For this reason, I ask the soldiers of the Republic of Vietnam to cease hostilities and calm and to stay where they are. Shortly after President Minh called for a ceasefire, a North Vietnamese tank knocked down the Independence Palace gate. The Viet Cong flag is raised at around 12.15 p.m. In Canto, where the South Vietnamese forces are intact and situate uh t- dedicate repulsed incoming Viet, so, Vietcon soldiers. There are reportedly a number of Arvin soldiers and officers who want to stay on duty and potentially continue to battle at the urban areas after this surrender is announced, but uh, BG Lee Van Hung and Major General Nguyen Ko Nam order the remaining Arvin soldiers stationed there in Kanto to not continue battle on the evening, similar as the Siege of An Loke and later disbanded all remaining units. Both Arvin generals in Kanto committed suicide. ARVN units around the Mekong Delta break apart after hearing about the unconditional surrender. Earlier in that day, U.S. Ambassador Graham Martin was the last American diplomat to leave Saigon, lifting off the U.S. Embassy roof at 4.58 a.m. And at 7.52, U.S. Marine Corps Colonel James Keene and 10 U.S. Marines boarded an American helicopter and left, ending the U.S. presence in Vietnam. Saigon was renamed Ho Chi Minh City. He went to fat of North Vietnam would administer the provisional revolutionary government of the Republic of South Vietnam as president until July 2nd, 1976, when the area would formally be incorporated by North Vietnam as part of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Four Arvin generals committed suicide during Black April to avoid being sentenced to re-education camps. One of the last generals, Nguyen Konam, committed suicide on May 1st. And that'll do it for episode 97. Next episode, I will have my final film of our podcast series and the final of Oliver Stone's Vietnam films, 1993's Heaven and Earth. Until then, you can get links to articles on The Fall of Saigon and other show notes on the blog, and you can follow me on Twitter at PopAff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. We have two episodes and a wake-up left, folks, so thanks, as always, for listening, and take care. That's gone wrong. I don't wanna cry all alone. You've reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit affidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com/slash in Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Corps of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The NAM. While I miss my baby